And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me in John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And uh, we are picking up in the Gospel of John where we left off as we were headed into the Christmas season last year. Uh, we started walking through the Gospel of John last year at the beginning of the year, and we're uh, picking up where we left off and uh, continuing through this incredible gift of the Gospel of John. And just like maybe we would go to a game uh, in an arena, and when the game is about to tip off or start, there's no question about who's actually playing the game. Why? Because they are, they are marked by a uniform. They, whether it's the sneakers, the, the, the shorts, the shirt, if it's basketball, whatever that is, like when, the, when it's tip-off time, you, there's no mistaking who the players are because they are marked by this outfit. If you go to the doctor, uh, it's possible that oftentimes the doctor will be marked by a jacket uh, and a stethoscoper. A stethoscope. It's kind of hard to say. Uh, you know, they're they're marked. You go to these places, like okay, you you know how they're how the who they are because of how they're marked, and and in particular, Jesus is going to challenge us as believers with the defining mark of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, and it is not an article of clothing. It's not. It's not. What you listen to is not a. It's not a jewelry. It's it's none of the things. Jesus actually says you'll know, or they will know that 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 you belong to me because of the love that you have for one another. That the the believer of Jesus Christ is marked by a unmistakable, different love that runs counter to. What this world promises to deliver but can never fulfill. Uh, as we open God's Word in John chapter 13, what's, what's, uh, what's interesting is that there is a shift that is happening in John 13. And that John chapter 1 through John chapter 12 is dedicated to the public ministry of Jesus. If you go to John 1.1, it begins with just that powerful truth that says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then you go a little bit further in John chapter 1, and verse 14, and you'll see that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you go a little bit further in John chapter 1, and you will see John the baptizer look to Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And by the end of John chapter 1, you see Jesus' uh, first interactions with who would become His first disciples, and from chapter 1 through chapter 12, it is this adventure of following Jesus and the work and ministry of Jesus. And then in John 13, there is a pretty dramatic change where it's no longer about the public ministry of Jesus. Those three and a half years uh, were given to us, Holy Spirit, through the disciple John who wrote chapters 1 through 12. But then chapter 13, there is a shift from the public ministry of Jesus to the private ministry of Jesus. From the public ministry to the masses to this private ministry where we are seeing He is around a dinner table with His disciples. And in this text, we are gifted with what is John 13 through 17. It's what's called as His or Christ's farewell discourse 
There's a couple teachings, longer teachings that we see in the Gospels. They're marked by the letters in red. And these are a gift to us. And here is what's known as the farewell discourse. Why? Because in less than 24 hours from this meal that we're reading about in John 13, Christ will be crucified on a cross and He will uh, absorb the wrath of a holy God against sin on Himself. Less than 24 hours, that's what's happening from this moment that we are reading. And this night, many of you may know, and even just a few weeks ago, we walked through the teaching of the Lord's Supper and Communion and what that means. And we were actually in this same scene. It's Passover week, which means it's the last week of of Jesus' earthly ministry. The triumphal entry has happened. He's cleared out the temple. He's continued to teach through the week. And now he is in this upper room with just his disciples to take the Passover meal. And by this point of redemptive history, uh, this Passover meal is, is almost been like codified. It's, it's called a Seder meal. That word Seder means order. And by the time of Jesus and this night, there's actually now an order to this meal. There's four cups of wine. There's specific hymns that are read. Uh, the Passover story is shared. And there's this sequence and scope to what takes place on that night. But, but Jesus is about to put uh, an end to Passover. Passover is, is over. And He's instituting now a new meaning, a new significance to the bread and the fruit of the vine. And He's introducing this new covenant, not a covenant of law, but a covenant of grace. And He's introducing and He's teaching this. And in the Seder, and Jews will celebrate this today, as even we approach the time of, of Passover season for Jews and for Christians, we, we remember Good Friday and we celebrate Easter Sunday. But there's a part of the Seder where the youngest in the room will say this, what makes this night different than all other nights? And so that phrase will be said in Jewish households and those celebrating Passover all over the world. What's different about this night? And so I don't know who would have said that in the upper room when Jesus was in his, with His disciples, but very possible one of those brothers said these words, what makes this night so different than all of the others? And what Jesus is about to introduce them to and the teaching that He's about to pour into their lives is going to change all of redemptive history forever and ever and ever. And He begins by teaching His followers this, this defining mark of a believer's life. A defining mark. That defining mark is called love. John 13, 35, we're not going to get there today, but he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And again, this love runs so counter to what we experience and see in love. It's very possible in this room, when, when you think about even how you were raised or your experience in this life, when you think about love, you had an influence that shaped the way you viewed love. And for so many, love is this conditional thing that happens if you do this, or if you don't mess up, or if you do the right things, then it's this love. But what Jesus is teaching is, is His love is 
one that is unique. His love is a agape love. It's a love that says, I want the very best for you, even to the point of self-sacrifice. That's the kind of love He calls us to live as His disciples. Even in the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He's teaching about the same love, this sacrificial, selfless love. And you cannot define love appropriately unless it is linked with some type of sacrificial action. Because love is way deeper than an emotion and it's way bigger than a feeling that's fleeting. Love is action. And He is going to teach us this in an unmistakable way. The main idea for this morning is that Jesus is going to help us understand and see what love looks like. And that we are never more like Jesus than when we're serving We're never more like Jesus than when we're serving. A full, more complete definition of love is one that is not marked simply by an emotion. It is marked by an action. And as we think about this, think about what Jesus said. Greater love has no one than this, than one would lay down his life, that he would lay down his life, that love is a sacrificial action. So two profound truths about love that we are going to walk through this morning in John chapter 13. The first is a love modeled. A model. Jesus in His grace and love is going to model for us what He wants from us. A love model. Verse 1 of chapter 13, the Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think it's good to just notice he said when his hour had come, because if you read through the Gospels, you'll see multiple moments where the Gospel writers and even Christ will say, my hour has not yet come. Uh, We think about his very first miracle, the wedding at Cana, where Uh, He turned the water into wine. Jesus said to His mother in John chapter 2, verse 1, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Fast forward into John chapter 8 where Jesus is in the temple. And in John 7, verse 28, the Bible says, Jesus proclaimed as He taught in the temple, You know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. A little further in the temple treasury, John chapter 8, verse 19, they said to him, therefore, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. There's no scheme of man. There's no plan of man that can thwart the plan of God. This hour had been set in eternity past. Jesus says in John 13 in that upper room with just His disciples, my hour has come. This hour. He, we, we learned that, that Jesus anticipated 
longed to have this meal with his disciples. This hour had finally come and there's no, uh, I love that, there's, there's no hijacking of God's plan. God doesn't just be like, like oh, oh no, what are we going to do now? Like This has always been the plan and no one can thwart the plan of God. And his hour had come. And in verse 2, during the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. If you're familiar with the story, you'll know that, that there was one rogue, wear a mask, look like they're a believer disciple in the mix, and his name was Judas. That evidently he looked the part so well that he somehow had all his other disciples convinced that he was a follower of Jesus. But if you look beneath the surface and you look at the heart, you would see a heart who long before had been open to selfish ambition and greed. That it's amazing that, that the outside can look so much like, like one has it all together, but, but God, is, God wants our heart. And he sees our heart and he knows the heart of Judas. And again, the, the heart of Judas uh, was far from God. It's been said that Judas and the devil were co-conspirators in the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Don't, let's not miss, this is 100% on Judas. We see in Luke, or excuse me, John chapter 12, there was another foot washing before the one we're about to read about. And the Bible says this in John 12, 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Which on the outside sounds like such a good reason, but, but God always knows the heart. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. He knows what's going on. And look at verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor. He said this, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Judas is completely responsible and he left his, his heart open in that he had given himself over to greed, given himself over to ambition, given himself over to temptation. And we see the enemy fan the flame and we see this co-conspirators in work and Christ is going to be betrayed and arrested. And I just think it's important for us to be reminded, God help us to guard our hearts. God help us to guard our hearts because this isn't one of those things maybe when we were young or, or little like devil made me do it like that kind of thing like that that doesn't work because actually James the half brother of Jesus says the Holy Spirit through James says this in James 1 verse 14 each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire and then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin and when sin it is fully grown brings forth death. 
Judas has one of the saddest testimonies, the saddest stories that we read in all of Scripture. Because he had a front row seat to all Christ did, had that opportunity for life-giving relationship, but yet for Judas, he never gave the Lord his whole heart. He never repented of his sin and placed his faith and trust in Jesus. And if you know the rest of the story, he carries out the plot. He he, oh, he, he gives over Christ for a few pieces of silver. And ultimately, whether it's the guilt, the shame, the condemnation that only comes from the enemy, led him ultimately to a point to taking his own life. It's so sad. It's such a, it's such a, 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 a sad testimony. But yet Jesus knows everything. And He knows what's going on in Judas' heart. And in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things into His hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. Jesus has all the authority and power in the world. Just last week we saw this great commission that he gave his followers on a Galilean mountainside. And he opens up by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go. That he is the creator of all things. All things are created by him, through him, for him. He made everything, and yet we see Christ with all authority and all power. He's actually going to step away from the table, and He is going to do something that I am convinced is going to make the disciples' jaw drop to the ground. I think of that power under control. I've kind of shared this thought before, but I think about NASCAR. I think about, uh, are there any NASCAR fans? And you think about those cars that are made to run hundreds and hundreds of miles an hour. And if you ever watch the race, there'll be a pace car that kind of leads out that pre-lap or if there's a caution, that pace car gets back out. And what happens is you have these, these cars that are made to run and run strong, but yet they're, they're, they're power under control. And yet when that flag goes up, they're gone. And there's this picture of, of this, this power, all the power and authority in heaven on earth God has. And here He is with all of this power and He's stepping away from the table and he's going to wash the disciples feet verse 4 he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel he tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him feet washing was a common practice It's a common practice. They're about to take the Passover meal. They would typically, it would be reserved for for whoever maybe the the most, uh, whoever maybe the servant of the home was. You wash the feet. And and so it would be an insult. It would be inappropriate to eat a meal with, with dirty feet. And so remember who's in the upper room. Jesus and the disciples and nobody else. And so here the disciples are, and just a reminder, their feet are, I mean, they've got to be nasty. Like there's no Jordans in Jerusalem. There's no hey dudes that you can slip on in Jerusalem. Like there's no covered feet. Like it's all exposed, all sandals, all walking through these dirty streets traveling. And here they are with nasty feet, and they're sitting at this meal, and they're probably thinking about who's cleaning our feet. Who's going to do this? Uh, We don't have it in this gospel, but in Luke 22, if you read the same account of this same moment, 
you will find the disciples are actually arguing with each other about who the greatest in the kingdom can be. And so here they are, dirty feet, around this Passover Seder meal, and, 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 and they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And what does Jesus do? Jesus, with all authority in heaven and on earth, He steps aside, He takes the water, and He begins to wash their feet, their jaws had to have been on the ground. The conviction had to have been overwhelming. Yes, in an, in an instant they would wash the Lord's feet, but wash each other's feet, they would they, most likely they would, they would never consider that. Because an entitled spirit or one who's arguing for greatness is going to miss every opportunity to serve. And so no doubt they're probably embarrassed. And if you've ever been in a room where there's been an awkward silence, this is probably that moment right now. And look at Christ. Verse 7, or excuse me, verse 6. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Lord, do you wash my feet? And do you ever know the guy or the person, they're either dumb enough or courageous enough to say what they're thinking? Peter's that guy. Like He's going he's gonna to go there. He... He's been described as, his, as the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. He just, he never has a lack for words. He's just, you know, what do you think you're doing? What are you doing, Lord? What are you, what are you doing? In verse 7, Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. I read that and I realize probably in this room right now, there are believers who are living in a tension. And that tension is we are in the midst of a circumstance we don't understand. We're in a circumstance we don't get. And whether it's brokenness or disease or, 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 or duress, struggle, whatever that might be, we, we may be in this position of just not being able to like, what, what is going on here? What is happening? And the comfort comes as the believers to know that God is always in control. He's telling Peter, listen, what's happening right now, you're not going to understand this. But one day you will. You say, how is that? Why is that? Because after this meal, they're going to sing a song and they're going to go to a garden. It's called the place of crushing, the Garden of Gethsemane. Christ will pray. He'll encourage His disciples to pray. They're going to fall asleep. Judas leads the mob over with their torches and clubs. They arrest Christ. Christ will endure kangaroo court after kangaroo court. Ultimately, before Pilate, ultimately, he will bear a crossbeam and carry it to a hill called Calvary. Ultimately, Christ will absorb the wrath of a holy God against our sin and the sin of all time. And He's going to die on that cross, shedding His blood. They're going to take His dead body and they're going to wrap it up and they're going to put it in a tomb. And after three days, Jesus is going to raise from the dead and He's going to prove that He has power alone to forgive sin and to give us peace with God. And even then, what they can't see yet is that God is going to empower them with His Spirit so that they will be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit is the helper, the teacher, the comforter. And they just can't see all that yet. But it's coming. It's coming. Like it's, they're, they're going to see it. But right now, Jesus is like, you, don't, you can't see. You don't understand right now, but you will. You will. Jesus sees the whole picture. 
Acts chapter 1, and I believe it's verse 6. This is the ascension of Jesus, and Jesus is about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. This is after his time after the resurrection. He's returning the Father. He lets them know he's going he's gonna to come back again. But even the disciples in that moment, they're saying, so, so Jesus, right now, are you going to set up your kingdom now? Like They, they still don't 100% understand that before Christ comes as the conquering king, and he is, and he will, that he first came as the suffering servant. So in verse 8, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Wouldn't we, we, we'd see ourselves like we'd say the same thing. What are you doing, Lord? What are you doing? How could you do this? And, and Peter is just like, you shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If I don't wash you, you have no share with me. I mentioned even the disciples, they don't understand how all of this is unfolding, how all this has come together. I mentioned in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is about to ascend, and they're like, hey, right now, right now, is this when you're going you're to start your kingdom? Like They don't completely understand what's going on. And so, so Jesus is helping Peter understand that he must first, first be the suffering servant. He is the conquering king, but he first came as the suffering servant. Jews long await the Messiah, the one who will set up his rule and reign. And so even the disciples know the rule and reign is coming, but they just don't quite have that figured out. And so Jesus is the suffering servant. And he's also using a spiritual illustration, a biblical metaphor to show the spiritual cleansing that is only possible through a relationship with Jesus. It's only possible with Jesus. So in verse 9, what does Peter say? Never the loss for words. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. <laughs> so he, he's like, no, Lord, how could you do that? And, and no, Lord, you're not going to do that to me. And then Jesus is like, listen, if, if, you, if, you're, if you're not washed by me, you have nothing to do with me. He's like, my head, my hands, everything, everything I have. And I love Peter. Peter wants all of Jesus, and Jesus wants all of him. Which the encouragement today is Jesus wants all of you. And I pray that we want all of Jesus. He wants every bit of Jesus. And in verse 10, Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. What's G? Again, this, this, it's this biblical metaphor, this, this spiritual illustration that Jesus is helping Peter understand. The one who, who is bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet. In other words, you take a shower, you take a bath, you're clean. If you're going to walk even just out of the tub and you walk around the house for a little bit, or you walk outside, it's, it's not going to take long. Your feet are going to get dirty. You don't have to take a bath or a shower all over again. Just wash your feet. And so that, that washing, that bathing is illustrative of the cleansing act of God's grace when He forgives us through repentance and faith. He washes us. When we repent and believe and trust, He saves us. The Bible uses uh, uh, courtroom language. He justifies us. Uh, just as if we've never sinned. The, the righteousness of God has been gifted to us. Like 
You don't have to do that as a believer over and over and over again. When you're saved, you're saved. And when you've bathed, you've bathed. But we all know, spiritually speaking, our feet do get dirty and we do those things we wish we wouldn't have done. Uh, we, we, we make those mistakes and all those things. And so we have the blessing of God's conviction and the blessing of confession and the blessing of, of repentance and the, the blessing of rest that we are forgiven. But Jesus is saying there's one of you who has not bathed. There's one of you who has not washed. Not all of you are clean. And in verse 12, the Bible says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments, he resumed his place. We see this love modeled, and now we're going to see a second observation, love commanded. Jesus is intentional about everything he does. And he's intentional with his disciples in this moment. In verse 12, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Teachable moment. Profound. They're probably, again, still getting their jaws up after what Christ has just done, just displayed, just poured out. And Christ says, as I have done to you, you also do for one another. That this act of service, this life of service, this life of sacrifice, this life of pouring out, only made possible through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. This is what Christ has called us to in verse 15 for I have commanded or excuse me I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you truly truly I say to you a servant is not greater than his master nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him if you know these things blessed are you if you do them how do we how do we live this Blessed life. What does a blessed life look like? Jesus says, you will experience blessing when you love the way I have loved you. When you serve the way I have served you. This is how the world is going to know that you belong to me. Because this type of love is so foreign to the world. Who desperately is seeking for that feel or that satisfaction. But it only comes through a relationship with Jesus. What a powerful moment Jesus is having with this intimate group of followers in this final meal. And it makes me think over to Paul's words. And I want to read them over in Philippians chapter 2. And what a great challenge to us as believers and from the Holy Spirit through Paul to the church. And I just want, I want us to imagine this letter was written to us. Like, even just like, not even to the church, like to you, to you, uh, specifically to you. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing. This is so challenging. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus says they will know your mind by how you love each other and how you love others. And as I have done to you, so you do to other people. This love is a sacrificial love. And can I just say impossible apart from the work of the Holy Spirit through a relationship with Him. Brothers and sisters, we are never more like Jesus than when we're serving. Jesus is serving, and we're never more like Jesus than when we are serving. And so in light of this text, I just want to draw a couple points of application uh, this morning. The first is, what do we do if I'm a really, really, really selfish person? I'm not asking for a show of hands, but my hunch is we all wrestle in some shape, form, or fashion with this me first, with this uh, sense of, 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 of my need, what I want, and, and like we struggle with that selfishness. And, and to which I think with this, what do we see? We see the disciples spending time with Jesus, and it's the voice of His instruction that they're going to walk out of that room and they're never going to be the same again. We just, this past hour, we had a, one of our pathway classes. We call it our Love God Pathway class, where we just talk about how to have a thriving personal relationship with Jesus. And, and before our actions ever make it outside of ourselves, it starts way earlier in the heart and in the mind. And so what does Paul say? Paul says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? It happens as we saturate our minds with the Word. What is the Word? The Word is His voice into our lives. And so it's with His Word and through the power of the Spirit that we daily die. We daily surrender our will to His. It's that prayer when, when Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's wanting His will before our will. But then you may, you may find the challenge of how do you love people that you don't like? Or how do you love people that are hard to love? And as far as I can tell, Jesus did not give an exception clause in this upper room. He says, as I've done to you, you do. In this famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 
think about that upper room. Don't know what it was looked like. Again, Judas evidently played the part enough to make everybody think that he was genuinely a lover of Jesus. But we obviously know the truth of all of that. That's all going to be uh, unfolded as we keep going. But here's what Jesus did. Jesus, all authority in heaven and earth, steps away from the table, gets the water, gets the towel, goes up to, I don't know if Peter was the first one, uh, but he goes up, let's just say to Peter's feet, and he washes his feet. And Peter's like, no, what are you doing? And then he's like, no, all of me. Like <laughs> pour the whole thing on me. And then Jesus goes on to the next disciple, and maybe it was John, the disciple that we're reading his gospel right now. And he goes to John, and he washes John's feet. And then let's just say Judas is right here. He doesn't get done with, with, with John here and just go like, And go back over here to, uh, to who's next? We got, uh, let's say, James. We'll watch James' feed, and he just goes on, and then he goes and sits down. That's not the example. I mean, how many of us could wash the feet of somebody we knew was, was planning a, an attack on us? That's exactly what Jesus is doing. Not only that, we kind of like, well, John and Peter and James and all of them, like, they, they, no, what were they doing? They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so here's Jesus serving them, washing their feet while they're arguing about who's going to be in the greatest in the kingdom while another one is, is, is involved in a plot to hijack uh, this whole situation and sell Jesus out. Jesus is that ultimate model. He shows amazing grace. And God help us to show amazing grace. So whether it's your time with the Lord, God, help me and my selfish heart renew our mind according to your word. Daily die to self and live for Him. Or whether it is by God's grace and God's power, this is a very difficult person. It's a difficult situation. But with your strength, I can do all things. And I know I can do all things who gives me strength. And so by your grace, I'm going to serve them. I'm going to pray for them. But then I would also challenge, and this is just kind of a challenge for fun. But it would be this. Who do you know that God might prompt you to show a sacrificial, radical act of love to this week for His glory? All of us have circles of influence. We have people we work with. We have people in our family, people in our homes. We have acquaintances. We have random people. We have neighbors. We have all of these people. Is there perhaps one of those, one of those individuals or one of those families that God might stir your heart to say, hey, this week I want you to wash their feet. And not necessarily showing up with a bowl in the towel and saying, hey, by the way, can I wash your feet? But what's he saying? What he's saying is, is I, will, I will serve in the most menial, selfless, even dirty acts of show of love and care for you. Because this is what God has called me to do. Perhaps God wants to use you. Perhaps God wants to use your family to radically wash another's feet this week. And then the last thing that I would leave us with is just this, again, it's just this reminder. I, I just don't want us to lose sight. We're going to walk kind of verse by verse. Next week, we're going to pick up in verse 18. 
So, but, but as we do, I think it's always important that as we read the Bible, let's not forget, in a matter of hours, Christ is going to be hanging on a tree. In a matter of hours. And what is He doing? In His final teaching to His disciples, He's challenging them to love. To love. To love. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your amazing love. God, thank You for Your amazing grace. Father, I thank You for this text. God, I thank You that You've gathered Your followers in this upper room. You've poured Yourself into them for the past three and a half years. You're about to empower them and commission them to finish what You started. But Father, before You physically departed and before You would send the the Helper, the Holy Spirit to empower them, there was still some teaching that needed to be done. Because you would think by that many days spending time with Jesus that those disciples would have had it all together, but the farthest thing could be true. They're arguing about who's going to be greater. One of them is in cahoots with the enemy to to just to, to, to betray for some silver. But God, in Your grace and Your love that is unlike any other love, in all authority in, in heaven and on earth, You stepped away from the table, You took a bowl, You took a towel, and You started washing feet. And just as I've done, You said, You're going to do to one another. This is how the world is going to know. And so, Father, I pray in Jesus' name, God, May we crucify our selfish desires and our pride. I tremble to think at how pride has kept so many people away from surrendering to You with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, God. I pray, Father, Lord, that You would find us surrendered to Your Spirit, God. Your Spirit in us, through us, serving those hard to love hard to like, people that might be in our midst or maybe we don't even know them relationally, but we just associate with difficult, hurtful things. God, help us to love and help us to serve. God, I pray, God, I pray that we would be sensitive to your leadership. God, this was, this was a, this was a special night, but perhaps today is a special day for us. Every day is, but or maybe tomorrow, maybe there's somebody specific that you're placing on our hearts that we can serve in a radical way, in a, in a, in a why would you ever do this kind of way? But the whole purpose is to point people to you and your love and your gospel. And God, I thank you that in just a few hours from where we read, you will lay down your life all kinds of, of attempts were made to, uh, to, to, to bring your hour closer, but no man can, can, can change or affect. This hour has been set from eternity past, and this would be the hour that you would lay down your life for your sheep. You're the good shepherd. And so I pray, God, if there's anybody here who doesn't have a personal life-giving relationship with you, through repentance of their sin. It's a change of mind. It's a change of direction and a surrendering to You as Lord and believing in Your death, 
burial, and resurrection. God, that today would be the day for new life and times of refreshing would come from the Lord. So God, I pray that you would find us sensitive and obedient. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want you to stand with me as we wrap our time up this morning. I just pray we would uh, open our hearts however the Lord might lead. We have pastors who would love to pray over you, for you. But let's just give this time to the Lord and honor Him in this way.